Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast and Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download us from. Thank you very much for doing so. Our guest today, this is 1105B. The B is always great guest. This one, I'm interested in hearing her answers. It's Dr. Rachel Puchno. She's a PhD, Beyond Madness, The Pain and Possibilities of Serious Mental Illness is the book she authored. It's published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And in fact, um, she is a endowed professor, Rowan University, not an easy thing to be an endowed professor. Dr. Puccino, how did you decide to write this book? Mike, this book has a long history. Um, this book started with my experience. I have, I have seen and felt and lived uh, serious mental illness as a child, as an adult, as a, and as a professional. Um, this, this book sort of had its, its beginnings in 2014 when I wrote my, um, memoir. And my story is that my mother and my adopted daughter both suffer from, um, used to be called manic depression. Now it's called bipolar disorder. Um, so I've seen it as a child through the eyes of a child when my mother was suffering, then, um, went to graduate school and, and in psychology, um, and then my, my adopted daughter um, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So, so I, um, my, my family and I were, were secret keepers, just like many people. When my mother was ill, of course, this was in the 70s, and nobody talked about serious mental illness. Um, but you'd have thought that, that I'd gotten a little smarter and that we'd, as a society, gotten a little smarter um, but no, because when my daughter, my, my daughter, who's now about to turn 30, when she was, oh, 14, 15, um, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And my husband and I didn't tell anybody. Um, so what made me write my memoir was that when my daughter turned 18, uh, she left home with a um, person with a psychotic uh, disorder who she had met in the psychiatric hospital. And I had some explaining to do. I, because my brothers, to whom I'm very close, and very and, and many of my very close friends, didn't know anything about what my husband and I were dealing with in terms of my daughter. And I needed to I needed to talk. I needed to tell to tell my story. And I didn't want to tell the story, you know, time and time again because it was painful. So I started writing, and that 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 turned into my memoir, surrounded by madness. Um, and then once I wrote my memoir and I, and I, I felt comfortable talking about the, my experiences with serious mental illness, I took this on the road and I did talks at college universities, colleges and universities throughout the country. Um, I talked with social work students to be and, and medical doctors to be and psychologists to be. And I would tell my story and I would do a little PowerPoint and then I would open it up and I would say, okay, ask me anything. And, and uh, about serious mental illness. And we would have some of the most amazing conversations about what can we do better to make, what can we do in the future to make life better for people with serious mental illness? And once I had a few of these conversations, I realized that I needed to write the other book. And the other book is Beyond Madness. So Beyond Madness has answers. It has answers to what can we do to make life better for people with serious mental illness. So let me go back now and do a proper introduction. Um, 
Dr. Rachel Puchno, P-R-U-C-H-N-O. The website is rachelpuchno.net. And the book is Beyond Madness, The Pain and Possibilities of Serious Mental Illness. Is, um, has written a very engaging book. She's an endowed professor of medicine at Rowan University, the director of research at the New Jersey Institute for Successful Aging, and the author of Surrounded by Madness, the prior um, memoir, as she said it, a memoir of mental illness and family secrets, and the co-editor of Challenges of an Aging Society, Ethical Dilemmas. Um, and I want to get, since I do a lot on aging and uh, trying to stay as young as possible um, by lifestyle choices uh, in the rest of the podcast, um, Dr. Puccino, I'm going to get to that in a few minutes. But let's uh, talk about um, what you would have done differently for your daughter? That is, what is the solution um, with manic disease? And what have you done since you didn't do it until age 18, obviously? What has she, she was in, involved with someone who also had a psychiatric illness? Um, what would you have done differently at that time? Yeah, so so the biggest thing that I would have done differently is I would not have kept secrets about her illness. Um, you know, I think that there's still, despite everything that we know and all the progress that we have made, um, there's still a lot of stigma around uh, these serious mental illnesses. And when I'm talking about serious mental illnesses, I'm talking about um, illnesses like schizophrenia and uh, major depression and bipolar disorder. These are dis dis diseases um, that we know are brain diseases, disorders, and they can compromise a person's ability to think and to feel. And um, so, so I bought into what many people bought into when my daughter was, was younger. And that is don't, sh don't tell anybody, right? It's, it's, you know, you probably did something wrong. Maybe you're a bad parent or maybe you're, you know, you got bad genes. I don't know what it is, but, but I was driven to not tell people. And, and the, that was a huge mistake. And so I would really urge your listeners who are struggling now with a loved one who has mental illness, whether it's a spouse or a child or a, a, a relative to the first thing we need to do is we need to talk about it. Um, and what I have learned in the past decade or so since I've been talking about serious mental illness is that it's the odd family that does not have somebody in it suffering from one of these serious mental illnesses. I can't tell you how many times I've done a talk to a, a room full of college kids and I finished my talk and at least one person will come up and they will wait until everybody else is out of the room and they'll say, thank you for talking about this because that's me. You are me. I am you. Um, I have been keeping secrets for all my life. And it, so that's the biggest mistake that we make. I think that if more of us were not keeping secrets, if more of us were talking about the fact that, oh, my daughter has this problem or my son or my niece or my nephew or my husband, I think that the NIMH would have paid much more attention to serious mental illness. The budgets would have been bigger. 
the research would have been stronger, uh, we would have made much more progress. So I encourage people to to stop feeling so like you're the only one. Let mm-hmm. me just interrupt, Rachel. So, so we're talking to Dr. Pretchno, but just so people know, NIMH is the National Institute of Mental Health, and the budget she's talking about is the budget for the National Institute of Mental Health and studying yes. mental illnesses. Sorry, I just want yep. to clarify nope. that. Good. I'm glad that you clarified it. Um, you know, we, we don't keep secrets about cancer, and the, the National Cancer Institute has a huge, huge, huge budget compared with the National Institute of Mental Health. So I think that that's, that's one big lesson. If, if I could change anything that I did in the past, it, it would have been I wouldn't have kept secrets. And one of the really interesting things, Mike, is that once I did open up and start to talk, of course, you know, I'm a psychologist. And so I got a lot of friends that are psychologists. And once I started to talk about my experiences and tell people what I had dealt with as a child when my mother was ill, the, 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 the story that just amazes me the most, I grew up in Detroit. And um, one of the, it, it turns out that one of my very close friends um, had a grandmother who had um, uh, bipolar disorder. And it, when, when, when my friend and I, when I started talking about my situation, that enabled my friend to talk about her situation and to tell me about her grandmother. And when we put the pieces together, we realized that she also grew up in Detroit, my friend. And we realized that it was very possible that my mother and her grandmother had, had known each other and were in the psychiatric hospital in Detroit. So very small world. And, and the, the big message here is that, that I led a very lonely existence when I was dealing with my mother's mental illness. Um, and had I known, had I known that it was okay to talk, um, my life would have been very different. Rachel, I don't know your age, um, but it used to be that we didn't talk about the big C when it was in families either. And, mm-hmm. and yep. obviously that's, right. that's changed as well. Um, Yes. One of the things that talking about not only gets more funding for things, but it also helps people share um, what works, what doesn't work, successes, and share yes. and share caregiving is that's an important uh, phenomenon. So a lot of this is yes, and but it also but also there's a lot of power, Mike, in knowing that you're not alone. I can't tell you how many nights I would fall asleep crying. And, you know, I'm talking about I, I was um, a, a teenager in the, in the 70s. And um, so I felt like I was the only one. I was the only one struggling with this problem. Um, and, and, again, you know, one of these stories that, that just every time I talk to anybody, I, I, get, I keep getting these stories. And, 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 you know, it turns out that one of the, the guys that I went to high school with um, when he read my memoir, he contacted me after years and years and years. And he said, you know, my mother, too. I was struggling, too. And I thought I was the only one. So we all struggle and we all think we're the only one. And imagine what it could be if we we weren't the only one, because we're not the only one. And, and you know, I, I kind of keep harping on this because um, I, I still I know I know that today there are people that are keeping secrets and that there are people listening to your podcast now that are, are saying, oh, you know, couldn't be. I mean, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. You're not. You're not the only one. Now, Rachel, one of the questions we always, that always comes up is, 
since we've heard about the school shootings and the violence um, recently from, from, and almost every one of those people has been a loner or been um, thought of as alone or introspective or quiet. Um, does this, is your, is there something in this sharing of mental illness by the family? In other words, the, the father and the uncle of the recent uh, shooter in Illinois or of the, I guess it was the, the grand, the grandparents or the, whoever was taking care of the person in Uvalde, Texas, et cetera. Is there, is there something to help them deal with this? Is How do they deal with it right, when they're scared to deal with it? Right. That's, it's really hard. So first, first I want to clarify that, that um, some of the, you know, when, when a person with a serious mental illness um, is having a psychotic delusion and, and they're, they're hearing voices telling them to take a gun and shoot, you know, a handful of, of, of elementary school children, right? These people are suffering from untreated serious mental illness, right? And so I want to be really clear that when we, when we, when we, when we link serious mental illness and violence, yeah, there is a link. There is a link, but it's, it's not a link between mental illness and violence. It's a link between untreated mental illness. The untreated mental illness is the really important part. Untreated mental illness is linked to violence. Why? You know, imagine if you um, heard a voice in your head that said um, the world was going to, the world is going to explode tomorrow unless you unless you kill this, you know, you know, run over a child with, with, with a car. You know, these voices are very scary, and these voices are the result of untreated mental illness. So, so let's just, I just want to clarify that, but I do want to come back to your, your question about, well, what can families do if they suspect? Um, so so it's, it's hard. First of all, it's really hard. Um, secondly, it's really hard. And, you know, I think that, that what families can do is that they can um, attempt to get the person help, but that's really difficult um, for a lot of reasons. It's really hard to find a, uh, a professional uh, psychologist, therapist, psychiatrist um, who can take new patients. So there, there, there's a lot. There, it, it's, it's a struggle. And, and I don't want to minimize the, and, and say, oh, there's a really easy fix for what these families can do. Um, it, you know, if a family suspects that, that one of their loved ones is psychotic and they're, they're they're talking nonsense and they're, they're, they're getting upset. You know, I, I think that involving the police is, is wise, um, but not just calling the police. I think the police need to get, be, be given a heads up. They need to understand that this person is suffering from a serious mental illness. And what we really want to do, what we really, really want to do is get the person to medical, to, to where they can get medical help. This is a medical problem. And unfortunately too many people, with psychosis land up in our jails and our prisons. Why? Because we got no place else to put them. But what we really want to do is get these people the medical help that they need. As you said, getting them the medical help seems more difficult than we'd like it to be, clearly than we'd like it to be, but then it should be. I mean, 
even in, in, I'm at the Cleveland Clinic, and even at the Cleveland Clinic, there are waiting lists or time, you know, it's, it takes three months to get to see um, a new appointment for a psychiatrist in some, uh, in many instances. And as opposed to, you know, three days or even the same day for urgent appointments um, for medicine. And, and so should they be using, in other words, the way at the Cleveland Clinic it works is if you have a problem like that, you go to, you take the person to urgent care and you get care that day. Um, is there, I mean, is there, we hear about a number of other so, potential solutions, the, the stuff online, that is the uh, mental illness online uh, forums or, or telemedicine services. Do those work for this? Well, I mean, it depends, right? I, I, it depends. And first, I want to comment, if, if, if it only takes, if the waiting list at the Cleveland Clinic is only three months, I'm really impressed. Um, that's, that's tremendous, right? Because I, I mean, I personally have seen when I was looking for care for my daughter, and now this is a decade ago or so, but I was told, you know, not taking new patients, you know, call back in six months, maybe. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's a huge problem. Um, we, uh, many of our psychiatrists are aging, um, and we're not replacing them as fast as we need to. Um, and, you know, psychiatry is, a, is, is not one of the, you know, sexy medical professions to go into. So for many people, they don't, they don't go into it. But, um, you know, I, I, I feel like if I were going to do my career over again, I would go into adolescent psychiatry because that's, what, that's when these problems begin to be known, noticed, diagnosed. Um, and as difficult as it is to find a psychiatrist, finding an adolescent psychiatrist is even more difficult. So what does the person do? Um, you know, I, I think that, the, the, that, and again, there's no easy answer. So it's not like the, there's an easy fix. But, but if I heard of somebody, you know, now who, who suspects that there, there's a problem, I would tell that person to talk to everybody they can. And, you know, any, any medical person they do, if, if they're near a medical school, call the medical school, call the psychiatry department of a, the, medical, the nearest medical school, um, talk to anybody that you know. It, it could be a dental hygienist. It could. You never know who knows whom. But but again, once we start to talk about these problems and say, I have a problem. I need to find help for my son. Um, you know, then then we start to you know the, the doors start to open. But again, it's not easy. And and often, you know, you mentioned the urgent cares and the emergency rooms. Often those are the worst places to take somebody who is in the, the midst of a psychotic break. Um, because what they'll do is, is um, first they'll keep you waiting for 24 hours, if not longer. Um, and they'll, you know, they're not equipped. They're equipped in, in the emergency room. They're equipped to deal with heart attacks and broken bones. But they're not equipped to deal with people who, who are, are psychotic. So it can be the, and, and you know, the lights on all the time. And it, it can be the, a very, it can, the emergency room or an urgent care can be disorienting for any of us at our, at our best, but imagine what it's like if you're dealing with somebody who is psychotic, right? So, so we want to be really careful about that. That might not be the best place to go. You know, you might want to start with calling your, your family doctor and, you know, ask, tell the family doctor what's going on and who, you know, if a loved one of yours were having this, what would you do? 
Um, you know, we, we, we use the emergency room as a go-to place, just like we use the police when something is, is, is out of the ordinary. But, but often if somebody is psychotic and they're raging, if you call the police, they will come in with the guns aimed at them. And that just makes things worse. And that's how people get killed. We've been talking with Rachel Puchno, P-R-U-C-H-N-O, who is a endowed professor at the Rowan School of Medicine and obviously has a lot of common sense and logic as well as experience. Beyond Madness, the Pain and Possibilities of Serious Mental Illness, you can go to her website at Rachel Puchno, P-R-U-C-H-N-O dot net to find out more about the book. Just to remind you, we are sponsored by Life's First Naturals, the makers of both True Biotics and Bovine Colostrum. Life'sFirstNaturals.com. You can find about their randomized controlled studies for the benefits of both the probiotic for bone health, for um, vaginal health, and for general decrease in inflammation. And you can find out about bovine colostrum and its benefits for gut health, especially for patients, or especially if you um, have uh, are taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, even aspirin, or um, are a vigorous exercise person. That is lifesfirstnaturals.com. Dr. Puchno, I want to thank you. Obviously, the book has a depth of experience written into it, as well as these great anecdotes as you've uh, kind of sampled and teased us with today. Thank you very much. Um, we'll be back next week with 1106. Thank you, Caitlin, for engineering, but especially thank you, the listeners who have downloaded us. Thank you for doing it. Feel free to rate us. I hope you will rate us weekly. Tell your friends about us. Thanks again.